Our guest today is Anton Howes, author of the new book, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation, published by Princeton University Press. Anton has done a lot of research on the history of innovation and technology. He's looked into stories of specific inventors and companies and also questions around industrial policy and where countries that have innovation, where do they get it from? How does it happen? So really excited to talk to Anton today. We're going to jump into a number of different subjects that he explores in his book, and we'll try to throw a few curveballs at him too. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Anton, let's start with what's in the news right now and which you've been writing about. A lot of foundations and governments are looking at ways to incentivize innovation to address the coronavirus. And you outlined a few different ways in a blog post, direct funding, prizes, advanced market commitments, patents, and patent buyouts. Can you just talk us through these different ways that people are trying to incentivize innovation very quickly right now? What's what's the difference between them? And is it worth paying attention to? I mean, if someone's starting a business or has a business, is it worth paying attention to these things work or is it just like a lot of press and noise? Sure. So I think it's a pretty interesting time in that it's a very clear case right now where the faster innovation is, the more lives will be saved, right? The faster you can get antivirals um, out to patients, um, the faster you can start you know, not having to worry about ventilators and other things like that. The faster you can develop a vaccine, um, you know, the more lives, literally thousands of lives potentially you're going to save. Um, and so it's also a particularly good time, I think, to experiment with different types of what you might call meta innovation systems. You know, how do you tweak the patent system? What do you do with open source? What do you do with prizes? Should you be coming up with new prizes? Should you be experimenting with new forms of doing things? So in that blog post, what I was trying to do was just try to outline some of the things that people are already doing. And also just throw up a few ideas of stuff that's sort of worked in the past or has been tried out quite recently in other domains, but might also be useful in this particular domain. And I think that's important, not just for the current crisis, you know, in a few months time, hopefully when everything's kind of died, gone a bit, a bit better, um, where, um, you know, lockdowns have ceased and hospital beds aren't quite so full. Um, it's still going to be relevant because obviously the next time around you're going to want to be able to come up with a solution to whatever other virus suddenly comes out of, you know, wherever. Um, right. So the, the more we can, we can tweak our innovation systems, the better. So the ones I outlined there were, I mean, first of all, it's just direct funding, right? From governments. Um, this might be one of those cases where simply throwing more money at the problem is going to be a good thing. So, you know, fast tracking grants, app, grant applications, finding people who are already doing similar work and just giving them a, a just a lot more money um, is potentially going to help out, help them out quite a bit. The only thing with that one, of course, is that it's a quite a short-termist solution, right? When things go back to normal, I don't really expect that um, you're going to see the same kinds of funding um, sustained in the long term, right? Once COVID is no longer on everyone's radar as the big thing that needs to be solved right now, I imagine that over time those budgets will get cut again. Um, the other one that's worth looking at those prizes, right? So when we think of prizes for innovation, we tend to think of things like the, I think it's the X prize is the most recent one. The historical one everyone cites is the longitude prize, um, for fine, for famously, um, well, sort of not really quite given to John Harrison, 
um, in the 18th century for the marine chronometer for finding longitude at sea. Um, and typically, when people think about prizes, um, they tend to think of it being you solve a problem in a very set and constrained kind of way. You solve it in a way where you know, you've met certain benchmarks and therefore you get X million, X billion, um, whatever dollars, pounds. Um, but actually, there are a whole bunch of other different prizes that I think are worth considering there. So you've mentioned my, uh, my book um, on the Royal Society of Arts. One of the things that the Society of Arts, before it was royal, um, did in the 18th, in the 18th century um, was to offer prizes for people who met certain conditions, but also just to accept um, and give prizes to people who sent in unsolicited innovations, things that they could show worked sometimes tied to their actual application. So they might you know, give in a certificate saying, I've, I don't know, using this new windmill milled so many more um, pounds of flour than, 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 than the normal windmills, um, or I've saved so many lives with this new type of lifeboat or something like that, um, or through proofs of concept. So, you know, sending in a model, showing that it, it works to some experts and they decide whether or not to award the prize there. Um, so prizes that are both solicited and unsolicited. Um, and then the other one, which you, you mentioned there, was is the advanced market commitment. Um, and the idea there is to tie... Um, so this is an idea developed by, um, in fact, the most recent Nobel Prize winner, Michael Kramer, um, which back in the 90s, um, which is essentially to try to incentivize big pharma, so big pharmaceutical companies, which when it comes to COVID and related diseases are probably going to be the people we really want to incentivize. Um, to develop vaccines or develop medications that will be cheap um, and that will be distributed extremely widely. So it was developed for um, countries in the third world where um, you had a lot of problems with um, pneumococcal infections, um, but it wasn't worth those companies' investment to try and develop these vaccines, even though the disease isn't, isn't something that's terribly difficult to um, sort out, Ma mainly affects children. So the idea with the advanced market commitment was essentially that the prize fund doesn't go so much towards just rewarding the creation of the vaccine. Instead, it supplements um, the amount that they that the company gets per sale. Um, so if they sell it at, let's say, $2 a dose, um, they may have agreed with um, beforehand that they will actually get $6 a dose. Um, but the extra $4 will be made up from the prize fund. Um, and it seems to have worked extremely well, actually. So when it comes to those, um, those infectious diseases for, for children, you know, actually a lot of them have been vaccinated. I think it's an estimated 750, or was it 750,000 or 75,000? I don't know. It's a, when it's a podcast, you can't check your notes very easily, but, um, there was a certainly a large number of people, um, um, a large number of children's lives have been, um, saved. Um, as a result of that intervention. Yes. So, Anton, um, you mentioned in, in that article, there are several ways to incentivize innovation and invention. And you, you, you talk about how important patents can be. What are your opinions on patents in the broad scope of things, not just COVID related? Do you think they're good, necessary? Are they, you know, a, a one potential tool? Yeah, so I, I think the best innovation ecosystem is a diverse one, right? I think people should use the patent system um, if it's available for certain things, and they probably shouldn't use it for other things. Um, 
on the whole, I think the patent system probably works, right? On the whole, people are incentivized um, um, to create things, um, to invent new things. Um, they're also incentivized as a result of the specification system to make the details of those inventions public, which I think is a very important function of the patent system. Uh, when we think of the patent system, we need to think of it in relation to the alternative, which is secrecy, um, which is simply not revealing the details of those inventions at all um, and just trying to you know, lock them away in a room or whatever. Um, depends on the kind of um, invention that it is. Obviously, some things are easier to keep secret than others. Um, the evidence when it comes to patents seems to be that you know um, mechanical inventions, for example, are very easy to copy. Um, so it may have had a bigger effect on mechanical inventions, say in the 19th century, um, than on other types of innovation, at least until you had things like chemical analysis that suddenly meant that um, pharmaceuticals and other things um, were, could be um, could be patented um, more profitably. Um, but I think they should coexist alongside other other things like prizes. Um, in certain cases, you know, I think patents are just used by an inventor to say, look, I've done this and here's the official proof of it and I'm going to go to an investor and then because it says patent pending or it says I've got a patent, they're probably going to give me some money for this business idea built around that patent. So it can be kind of valuable as an, as an investment attracting signal. Um, but I think there should be other ways of doing it where you don't have that kind of temporary monopolistic right of the invention as well. Um, one of the things that the Society of Arts, for example, in the 18th century was given it had these very public prizes for inventions, businesses could also raise their money of saying, look, I won a gold medal from the Society of Arts, which was given to me by Duke, whatever, and therefore you should give me some investment. And often that's used in, the, if you check newspapers of the period, very often in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, you see people saying, this product, you know, Society of Arts prize winner, you know, even decades later, um, as a form of, of advertising. Um, and they weren't, they, they had to promise not to take out a patent. Some people abused that and obviously still did because there's nothing really stopping, stopping them. Um, except for honor, I guess. But, um, uh, most of the time it seems like inventors, um, stood by that or at least um, accepted the, the, the deal there. So one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, you win this medal, does that mean that you still had to make your invention public with the Society of Arts or um, where you, you could still keep it secret and that allowed you to have some sort of monopoly on it for a while? Yeah, so no, you had to make it as public as possible, actually. Um, so you'd have to deposit, if it was a mechanical invention, you'd have had to deposit a working model with the society, which people could then come and visit and you know, even have a go on them. Um, so this was, this was like an open source, an open source prize then, like, right? So yes. people could copy your invention and you didn't have any sort of legal protection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, so there is still a sort of protection that's confirmed, conferred by making something very public. Cause obviously if you can prove prior art that you've done something before, then if someone takes a patent for the same thing, you've got very public proof that actually they can't sue you for infringement. Um, and that's actually one of those interesting cases where I think there probably need to be more semi-official or a kind of very recognized institutions where prior art can be demonstrated to prevent kind of the, more, the abuses of the patent system. Um, um, so not only would they have to submit a model, but they'd also have to you know, send in specifications effectively, and then there'd be full descriptions printed in the transactions of the society, which would be sent out to members all over the country. and printed and elsewhere as well. 
Um, so it's very much about diffusion of knowledge and, and diffusion of useful inventions. A lot of times folks are talking about these like new ideas and sort of inventing the future, but you've also written a lot about ideas that were behind their time. Uh, you've talked about bicycles and Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. I was wondering if you could just give a few examples sort of beyond those or go in greater detail and and why do you think this happens? Because I think a lot of times in the startup world, there's this sort of perception that, oh, we're sort of breathing these fantastic and wonderful things and we're seeing the future. But it, it, that's not always the case. It doesn't sound like from your work. Yeah. So I think in general, innovation is just very rare. Very few people do things differently. They get very set in their ways. Um, you know, even people who are maybe inventive in one field are completely un, uninnovative in, in another field, right? Um, think about you know, your commute to work. Have you ever tried to actually, you know, check if it's actually the shortest route or if there was a slightly <laughs> easier route or have you compared the different dimensions and done a cost benefit analysis of, of, you know, which route is more scenic perhaps? Right. So, I mean, it, and, you know, that's the other thing is that improvement or innovation can also be towards different ends. Um, you know, you might have a route that maximizes scenery versus one that maximizes, you know, the, the, makes it as short as possible, uh, minimizes time. Um, yeah. So in general, I think innovation is actually quite rare. So the example of Dungeons and Dragons, right? This is a game, I guess, for people who haven't played Dungeons and Dragons, it can seem like this extremely complex thing full of, you know, massive rule books, I mean, literal tomes of rule books. And you assume that it's going to have loads of things you need to buy, probably. And, you know, do you have to dress up or is there like how many dice do you really need? But actually, I mean, the game can be played with literally just some dice and that's it. It's called a tabletop game for a reason because it takes place in people's heads, but sitting around a table. Or I guess nowadays you know, speaking over Zoom or whatever. Um, so it's a game that could have been invented literally at any time in the past. Um, for it to have appeared in the particular way that it did, I guess there were certain circumstances that led towards that um, and that people did actually in response to my post about it saying you know why wasn't why didn't you know why didn't the ancient romans have have um dungeons and dragons they said well actually look if you look at this thing in the 18th century this family was doing something similar and this other family had done something else or there was also the great example of um what's it called kriegspiel um, war game um, developed in the 19th century by um, military officers in Prussia, um, which is actually pretty similar as well. It was like a war game where you literally just said, "Oh, I move my, I move this battalion to here, and then I this other battalion charges around, and then another officer had to sit in and say, "Yes, I think that would work." You know, and there'd be a sort of neutral arbiter, just like a dungeon master in, in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so there are prior examples, but. You know, actually, on the whole, the fact that it's invented only a few times in all of recorded history, at least as far as we know, is actually quite striking, especially given how popular it is. Um, it's an extremely fun game to play. Um, so when you have these really good ideas, it can be, yeah, I th I th and I think it's just from the, the fact that they're rare because not that many people come up with new things all the time. Have you played it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah, now I have. <laughs> Yeah. All right, fa fa favorite class, and then I've got a question about uh, <laughs> that article. Uh, well, I've played it much more loosely than that. That's the thing. So, <laughs> uh, 
So not not like the official Dungeons and Dragons because no. I know they have like smaller box sets you can buy now, which is yeah. like a really cool way to get started with it. No, I was inspired by listening to a podcast called The Adventure Zone. Um, yeah, where three brothers and their dad play Dungeons and Dragons, and that got me. I, I got hooked on that, and then learned how to play the game very broadly speaking through that, and then did I've done a game with friends so. So what I saw, in addition to your comment section, somebody also posted your article on Reddit, and there's a whole Reddit discussion about the about your article, which is fascinating if you haven't seen it yet. And somebody brings up an interesting point where the rules and the idea of collective storytelling have been around for a while, but maybe it wasn't culturally relevant because the idea of adopting characters for a game wasn't just a cultural mindset when people were storytelling more about their own lives than fictional characters. And just another theory that somebody posited. So whether or not there, there's also, I think, this cultural aspect to it as well, where, you know, culturally we just weren't there yet, if that makes sense. It's kind of like, like, I don't, yeah, I'm, I was going to use the Palm Pilot and iPhone thing, but that was a technological difference and not a cultural thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, okay, how many years of human history, recorded history, how many different cultures, how many variations on those cultures? It seems striking to me that there wouldn't be at least a few more examples from earlier. I, mean, I guess my main point is that there was no physical constraint, right? Um, and actually, very often, innovation Correct. does occur when you have extreme cultural constraints on those innovations coming into being, being popularized, being used in the marketplace. You know, the history of innovation is often also the history of resistance to those innovations. Sometimes innovation, those innovations are bad for certain groups of people. They're right to protest, I guess, or they at least... You know, there's some justification there, um, at least from the way that they see things. Um, but yeah, so I don't see that as a particularly strong, at least it's not a hard physical constraint. It's not like there was had to be an element that had to be discovered or there was a scientific law that was missing or, you know, a material, hand, like the quality of iron didn't have to be high enough for that, that kind of invention. Um, and I have a bunch of other examples, right? So um, another one I mentioned, and that one was... Um, Signaling systems, things like semaphore, you know, signaling, writing essentially full sentences between ships. You'd think that that would be around for a very long time, but actually it's not that old. You've had certain types of signaling systems, but really not of the, of the kind that we're very familiar with. Those have really only re, I mean, been around since, as far as I can tell, the late 18th century, which is strikingly late. Um, I mean, they're just as useful in basically every prior century. Um, and the other ones, I mean, my classic example, my favorite one is, um, but this one's probably even more difficult to explain over, um, over a audio, um, is the flying shuttle, um, which is essentially just you attach some wood and some string to a, a normal loom and you can make it go twice as fast. Um, and you can make it much broader as well. So whereas you might have needed two people to work a loom, you can suddenly use one. Um, but actually, that you don't even need to be able to do that. It just makes the whole process much, much faster. But if you look into it, there really is no new science. There really is no new materials being used. It was applied initially to wool, even though it became famous for cotton. And wool was very much the ancient industry in England. Um, and there actually were cultural constraints to it as well. There was machine breaking. Um, the inventor actually ended up leaving the country, going to France, um, suggesting that either he had better better um, opportunities elsewhere or was somewhat you know forced to leave um, and even though he had a patent on it it was actually you know very widely infringed and he, he lost a lot of money on it 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, I use that as an example where all of the things that people think are important for causing innovation, it's actually a case where a major, major innovation, one of the, you know, the standard thing that you'll read about in here's five inventions from the British Industrial Revolution. That's usually going to be in that list alongside steam engines and Arkwright spinning um, Jenny and so on. Um, sorry, the water frame and, and Hargreaves are spinning Jenny. Um, all of those, it's one of those inventions that doesn't seem to fit those, those um, explanations. So it sounds like the idea of constraint does exist, though there are times you gave the example where, you know, he had to flee from England to France and this policy area around pro-migration, which you've done a lot of work on, which is, you know, to me, my takeaway today is that it may matter where you are if you're looking to start a business or develop a new technology or uh, do something new. Your physical location, the laws and the rules around it, the people around you do matter, potentially. Can you talk to us about pro-migration and, and I think especially what England was like before the Industrial Revolution? Um, because I think the way that we, people think of it today is very different. It's obviously a leader in many, many ways around the world, but it wasn't always the case. And so can you talk about that way England used to be and how migration fit in and how your physical location might make a difference? Yeah, so I mean, Britain before the Industrial Revolution is a pretty backward place, technologically or scientifically. Right. If you look in the 1540s, nearly all of the expertise in certain areas, when, when, when policymakers are intervening to create an industry, they're usually hiring someone from Germany or from Italy or perhaps from France, um, or even further afield in, in some cases. Um, and that, you know, goes for exp voyages of exploration for which they need certain techniques, um, using, using, um, celestial navigation rather than just using dead reckoning or using compasses. Um, when it comes to fortifications, it's usually Italians. When it comes to metallurgy or mining, it's generally Germans they're trying to attract. Um, and so you have this policy, which I've, I've, I've coined a term, which I, I probably won't catch on, but of promigration, right? Which is that it's not just encouraging immigration that a, a state can do and lower barriers or try to make their country more attractive, but they can actually also often send people to go and find experts in a particular field and physically get them to come to the country voluntarily um, right and you've seen that uh, usually voluntarily i mean <laughs> actually a great example of this is after after world war ii i'm not recommending this but after world war ii you have operation paperclip um for the u.s which was to induce voluntarily lots of um, german scientists to come to come to the u.s and that's where you get actually a lot of the architects of the space program um came over as part of that um, at the same time, there's another operation, and I forget the name now, but there's another operation in Russia, or at least in, in, in the Soviet Union, um, where they rather more forcibly took a bunch of German scientists and brought them to Russia to work on also on their rocket program. Um, interestingly, in that case, they ended up, a lot of them going back um, for internal political reasons, because um, it suited the regime at the time to stress that actually the German engineers were useless relative to the Russian engineers, so why do we need them anyway and send them all back? Um, so a lot of them, you know, although they and their families were, you know, sort of herded onto trains, apparently while hung over after some party that they, they'd invited them to, um, to just kind of stick on a train and take them to the, to various parts of Russia to work on, on um, rocket engineering, which actually weirdly is one of those ones that didn't last. So it's not, a, it's not a good example of something to emulate because, you know, people working, um, 
people working against their will don't tend to be quite as good when it comes to creative things like invention innovation. <laughs> so if someone's listening, figure. yeah, someone's listening to this. They want to hire an engineer. You're saying use uh, <laughs> use ZipRecruiter That's or right. Indeed or something like that rather than uh, kidnapping. Yeah, I mean, usually it's, you know, offer them a lot of money. Um, I mean, that's a difficult thing, right? If you're a country that's trying to attract expertise, um, expertise, people who are expert are often extremely expensive. Um, and so you need to think about ways that you can attract them um, in other ways, I guess, either through money. Um, a lot of countries recently are trying to make themselves more attractive. Um, this isn't really a promigration policy. It's more just kind of making themselves more attractive um, in the sense of, I don't know, the UK is, has had a scheme to make um, stock options that people might offer in a startup um, more tax-friendly in the sense that, you know, there's a tax break essentially on that. But other countries are now copying that as well. Singapore, since at least the 1990s, if not much earlier, is actively trying to get people to move um, by, you know, literally identifying a team or, or an individual and saying, oh, this person, we should probably have them as well. Um, there's a lot of issues with how you do it, right? You probably need to reward the people who do the finding. Um, you need some way of working out whether or not the people who are attracting are fraudulent or if they're actually the real deal. Um, you know, these are the sorts of issues that, I mean, there's, there's been centuries of dealing with those issues and there's lots of different ways to try and deal with them. Um, but to speak to the other um, part of the question, um, yes, location matters. Um, a large part of my work is about what I call the spread of an improving mentality from person to person, just to say that innovation as a practice, given how rare it is, seems to spread. Um, and this isn't the spread of skills necessarily. It's not that engineers are teaching engineers. Um, you know, we, we're very well aware of, of, of those sorts of spillover effects, um, but rather that people do actively inspire other people to do to think slightly differently about the world around them, to see room for improvement and try to tweak it. Um, trying to make small changes. Um, so, you know, from a, a lot of my work, a lot of the inventors I've studied, and this is from a very large database of innovators of the Industrial Revolution, just what I'm doing for my next book. Um, not the, not the, I shouldn't falsely advertise the first book. It's about the study of arts, not this other stuff. Um, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, but the stuff I'm doing for my next book, um, is all about tracing those connections between people, um, noting the spread of the improvement mentality, how people, how inventors changed what they thought about innovation, but also noting certain key facts, which is that it does seem to be not just a skill, right? People who improve in one area also tend to be quite polymathic. They'll start improving other areas of their life as well, or other industries or getting interested in other problems. Um, um, and often to be an improver, you don't really need to have that much skill. A lot of them tend to be self-taught, or certain parts of the problem, they'd hire people to sort out particular issues while still being the overall inventor in the sense of having a vision that they're trying to execute. Um, but the key thing there is that innovation seems to spread from person to person, and it seems to spread best through physical, or I guess face to, not physical, face-to-face -face contact, right? Which is if you talk to someone face-to-face, -face, um, you're much more likely to adopt, especially on a regular basis, or you really see them at work or you see them improving things or inventing things, um, you're much more likely to kind of catch that, you know, innovation bug. So how did this happen in the Industrial Revolution? Was that, would you say, the biggest factor in that it was kind of the spread of mentality of innovation and invention? So 
There's two parts. I think innovation has always spread from person to person. So even before the Industrial Revolution, you see cases of that that kind of, you know, if you were to trace it, you could see it going from person to person even before it arrives in Britain um, or really takes root in Britain. I think the difference in Britain is that they somewhat more uniquely develop institutions that spread innovation more, um, that facilitate innovation sharing, that facilitate innovators meeting face-to-face all the time. You know, lots of societies, both local and national, regional as well. Um, things like the Society of Arts are good examples of that, where it's not just rewarding innovation, but actually a lot of the members are innovators themselves, sometimes winning the medals from the Society of Arts, sometimes patenting, sometimes just acting as judges on their you know, prize committees, sometimes just giving some money because they think it's a generally good thing. Um, and I think what develops in Britain is relative to the rest of um, Europe, certainly. Um, you know, most of my comparison focuses on the rest of Europe, but relative to the rest of Europe, they seem to not even necessarily develop the institutions first themselves, but when they hear about it in another place, import that idea as quickly as possible and often do it better. Um, so the Royal That's Society... Flat. Yeah, yeah. So actually, Britain by 1700 already has, there's a kind of a phrase about it that if you want something invented, go to France. If you want something improved, go to Britain. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's one of those things where the French maybe get this reputation for having lots of great scientists who can do theoretical things um, or come up with new theories. And, and invention in this period often means not just invention in the technical sense, but it means things like coming up with, you know, it could be a literary endeavour as well, in, in inventing a novel. Right, inventing a story of, of of some kind, invention of you know new religious ideas, which is, you know, innovation or invention is often talked about when it comes to laws and and, and religion. Um, invention has this much broader sense, um, but improvement I think is often um, much more kind of specific. So, how big of a role did government play during this time to help attract inventors and spread this mentality? Um, it's it's mixed in different periods. Um, so you certainly have Promigration policies where, you know, getting German miners to set up mines in certain parts of the country and bring their expertise. So in a sense, you can call that innovation because they're taking practices in one area and applying it to a completely new area, often having to solve localized problems in the process as well, right? Um, Catch-up growth or technological transfer is often a process that is quite itself quite inventive um, in the, you know, Local circumstances are often very different to where the technology was invented in the first place. And so you need to do work out how you're going to uh, adapt it accordingly um, to make it work. And so you might need to tweak or improve it still further. Um, so government played a role, I think, in, in those sorts of cases. Um, on the whole, though, there's not all that much, certainly not in the, in the sense of direct funding. Um, you do have the Longitude Prize in the 18th century, but that's for a very specific problem that the government was very invested in. Um, given the importance of the Navy. Um, you certainly have some direct funding in the sense that some innovators will have worked for the government, for example, in the shipyards, um, or you've got lots of military officers who are also coming up with things. Um, so in a sense, their salaries are often paid by the government, or after the fact, they might have got a reward from them. But it's difficult to say the government actually caused that to happen. Um, I think it's more often the case that it just so happens that certain government employees ended up catching that improving mentality and then applying it to their work, and then the government benefited. Um, and so very often, 
what I find is, although it seems like there's a government initiative, actually it's usually the other way around. It's usually someone is approaching the government, then getting them to back their project, um, getting them to back their innovation or invest in it. And that's even the case actually with some of the promigration policies. It seems like some of the time um, it's people coming from abroad and saying, and having made some connections in some other field, then saying, look, we can also bring these experts from I don't know, brass industry or something. Um, from Chemnitz, and we can start applying that here as well. So sort of like how the university research grants work today, right? Like they, they want to invent or innovate something new, and they go to the government and say, you know, give us some money because we're going to research this, and maybe it applies to government, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of more similar to that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm kind of curious, is there something that we can do today to... What would your recommendation be for modern human beings looking to innovate, invent new things, to kind of cultivate this culture of uh, innovation mentality? What can we do today? How can we apply that? Okay, well, on a so there's two parts to this, I think. One is that on a personal level, it's worth looking at things that can be improved, right? And part of that is, is I think, the natural improver is someone who's dissatisfied with the way things are, Um but there's a difference between whinging about something and doing something about it, right? So if you find that something is annoying for whatever reason or somewhat suboptimal, I guess, right? Um, even kind of seeing it as being suboptimal rather than just the way things are is, I think, part of the first step. Um, the second step, though, is actually doing something about that, trying to work out, okay, how can I plan something that's slightly better? So, you know, how can I make, what are the smallest tweaks I can make to improve things? Well, I guess people kind of do this all the time. I think innovation as a mentality is pretty widespread today, um, certainly more so than usual. Um, but the more you concentrate it in terms of people doing innovative things around each other, the more likelihood there is of it spreading and also being applied to interesting areas. Um, so that's part of it. On a personal level, it's find things that are worth improving and do something about it. See room for improvement um, and then act upon it. Um, you know, whether it's looking at you're being served coffee too slow in one shop because they haven't got a good enough production line going on or, you know, or they could be using this machine, you know, I don't know what you do about it. You could set up your own coffee shop and, and in, in rivalry to it, or you can just maybe suggest it to, to the person who owns that coffee shop as to how they might speed things up. Um, but that, I guess, is, is part of it. Um, there's lots of cases of inventors doing it in this kind of personal level thing. George Stevenson, one of the railway pioneers, apparently when waiting for a train on a platform would start giving tips to the driver as to how to hold the shovel a bit better um, when shoveling the coal into it and how to you know, do this or that. Um, but the other part of it I think is much, much more social, which is that if you're interested in innovation, you are somewhat innovative, or you're just a fan of innovation and don't necessarily want to do it yourself. Um, you might be a cheerleader in a sense for innovation. I think those are extremely important throughout you know, how innovation accelerated in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, 19th centuries as well, um, is creating institutions that spread it further, that, that create those concentrations of people. Um, so publishing about it, promoting it, getting people to meet and talk about it and present things is extremely important. Um, and that can be in a very informal way through meetups, I guess, um, in fact, a lot of the famous societies like the Lunar Society at Birmingham are effectively just that, right? It's just they all met once a month at the full night of the moon when, when walking um, 
you know, full street lighting would be well lit um, to get to someone's house and they would meet there and talk about things. Um, the same with the Royal Society or the same with the Society of Arts. The Society of Arts in 1754 is just 11 people meeting in a coffee shop, right? Um, who knew that 266 years later it would be this kind of royal institution with this huge history um, but it has to start somewhere right I guess nowadays it's like does it start on a Starbucks or a Costa or something um, but those sorts of meetings and, and proactively organizing things um, is extremely important there. I'm wondering if you have like a favorite single inventor or invention story that just is personally fun because I feel like you've got so many different stories through all of your writings and I wonder if any stick out. Yeah, there's a few. There is a few. Um, I'm a big fan of... Oh, where to start? There's a few. So there's a guy called... It's actually an American born, at least. Um, although he fought on the loyalist side in the American Revolution. Um, a guy called Benjamin Thompson, who becomes... So having started basically as, I would, you know, I guess lower middle class, American... Self-taught, is a bit is a school teacher for a while. Somehow, by the end of his career, is Count Rumford, weirdly a count of a place in America, even though the American Revolution had abolished titles. Um, but he's actually a count of the Holy Roman Empire, having along the way become best friends with the Prince Elector of Bavaria, um, and being his sort of innovation czar. You know, coming up with all these different solutions like thermal leggings for the, for the Bavarian army and different ways of organizing their, um, how they cook things like cooking, new cooking utensils. Um, he's the founder of the Royal Institution, which still exists, a sort of pro-science organization, which in the 19th century would be the kind of research lab for Sir Humphrey Davies, Michael Faraday, you know, really great scientists of, of the of the early to mid nineteenth century, um, and but there's just so many different parts. I think his story is a particularly interesting, not really rags to riches, but definitely kind of obscurity to riches kind of story. Um, he actually ends his, ends up marrying the widow of. Lavoisier, the famous French chemist who had been executed during the French Revolution, um, but then having this kind of tumultuous relationship with her where they absolutely hated each other, I think, by the end of the marriage. Um, she having been the head, you know, really one of the chief centres of the Paris soiree scene, trying to you know have all these intellectual conversations with people, um, him being quite cranky and not wanting to meet people anymore in his as his age progressed and him locking out her soiree members and her having to conduct it over the, over the garden fence and then in retribution pouring boiling water over his roses. So, you know, there's like all these little great personal anecdotes with Count Rumford. So it's well worth looking him up. There's, I think you can read a lot of his um, autobiographical stuff online for free, you know, because it's, it's well out of copyright. Um, other favourites would be people like um, Thomas Dover, who was both a medical innovator, although some of his innovations I think nowadays people wouldn't trust so much. Um, he had the nickname Dr. Quicksilver for recommending mercury for syphilis and things, which as far as I can tell, by the way, actually I think works. Um, it's just that they knew that Quicksilver was poisonous. It's just that they hoped it would kill the syphilis before it killed you in the same way that chemo, I guess, 
functions. Um, but he's also, interestingly, a pirate. Um, so he sailed with Woods Rogers, um, who's not one of the more famous pirates like Blackbeard, although he does, you know, appear in, in fiction occasionally as being one of these. Like, let's just stick in this, this character from pirate, the golden age of piracy. So sails with Woods Rogers, um, and he was the person who picked up Alexander Selkirk, who was the real life Robinson Crusoe. Um, and he was in, he was the captain of the ship that Mike found him. Um, so yeah, interesting, interesting guy, that one. Well, I've, our versions of Pirates Now will be like, oh yeah, he downloaded, you know, uh, many copies of Backstreet Boys and InSync songs <laughs> <laughs> when he was in middle school. And, you know, yes, she would download, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And then she went on to invent yeah. this new torrenting software or whatever. Um, well, I guess it would be, I mean, he was a privateer. So I, I guess semi-official, right? Which is that the state sort of backed that kind of piracy. So I guess it'd be more like, Oh, they were, uh, they were downloading stuff illegally, you know, from China or Russia just to like disrupt Hollywood or something. To- <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, and then uh, my, my last question is, I think there's been a lot of conversation about sort of technological advancement in progress. Is it good? Is it on net good for society? I think, you know, current context being around privacy and sort of digital rights, um, I'm curious overall your perspective. You've talked about Malthus and the Malthusian trap in the past and concerns about sort of will we be able to kind of continue to get better? I think there's a lot of concern about climate change and just sort of like where are we going with things? Would we be better off if everyone just stayed home and baked bread or is it good that people are pushing in these different directions? Is it, do you feel like, are you an optimist, I guess, fundamentally? Do you feel like we're moving in the right direction with these types of things? And I know that's a very broad question. Sure, I, I'm very much an optimist. Um, I think, broadly speaking, when people improve things, they are improving things. Um, now, obviously, some innovations can affect others in a way that can be detrimental. Um, but on the whole, even for those innovations, you often have people inventing things at the same time that deal with those negative effects um, and counterbalance them. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution isn't just lots of you know children being stuck in factories and mines and whatever. Um, it's not just this Dickensian nightmare. At the same time, you've got other inventors who are coming up with solutions to those. Um, so I recently blogged about a guy called George Smart who invented a, a, a thing he called the Scandiscope for cleaning chimneys without using, you know, four-year-old children. Um, pretty useful, um, but also an inventor, right? He's not as famous as James Watt or whatever, um, but he's very much uh, an inventor of that period who's, who's, trying to find things to improve. And that's actually, by the way, coming back to a much earlier point, why I think it's important to have institutions, a variety, a diversity of institutions that support innovation in different ways. Right? Patents are often very profitable. Certainly when they used to be more expensive, it was more geared towards things that are profitable. Prizes, on the other hand, you know, they can often be targeted, directing people with that improving mentality, directing them towards solving particular problems. I think very often we should think of prizes as not increasing innovation, but directing it. Um, and so having lots of different institutions that direct it down ends that we think are more valuable is the way to go. Certainly not stopping innovation. I mean, I don't think that will happen at this point. Um, you know, we've had imp- innovation accelerated for a few centuries now, and there are no signs that are really slowing down, I don't think. 
um, where it's headed in terms of its directions, what kinds of things are being improved, that changes over time, obviously. Um, as certain technologies get invented, people move on to the next thing. Um, but I don't think there's any sign of, of, of the mentality disappearing. And that's, you know, despite the fact that you've had all sorts of different institutional arrangements, you've had all sorts of different cultural movements, you've had all sorts of different law changes, you've had all sorts of different government policies. In the meantime, it doesn't seem to have affected things hugely. Um, barring big catastrophes, you know, you mentioned climate change, I guess nuclear war would be the other one there, right? I mean, Obviously, if the earth falls into the sun, like it's not gonna, it's not great, but like I think, you know, these outside risk things, um, do as much as you can to prepare for them in, in, in terms of contingency plans, I guess, but otherwise don't, don't worry about them too much. That's everything I had. This has been absolutely fascinating. So I, but I did have one question going back to something on the pro migration. So when you talk about pro migration, you're not specifically saying pro-immigration, or is that a diff- is that different? Yeah, I'm trying to use it slightly differently. Um, it's not pro-immigration or pro-migration. It's it's a policy that isn't immigration or emigration, but pro-migration, um, which is as in you're proactively finding people to get them to move. Got it. So that's different than saying like open your borders, anybody can come, and hopefully yes. there's inventors in there. It's a policy of like we're going to go to other countries and specifically find the innovators and bring them back in. And I think there's a long history of those sorts of policies throughout, throughout not just in the UK. I mean, I, I mainly focused on the UK, but as I mentioned, Operation Paperclip, you've got the Soviets doing similar stuff in the 20th century. Singapore does pretty similar stuff in the past few decades as well. Um, I've just not seen a name for it used that way, and that seemed to be a good name that fit. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't seen that used either. And the way you were describing it, I was like, I want to make sure this is clear that this isn't the same as like, oh, open our borders and anybody can come. And Yeah, yeah. There's no dash between pro or migration. It's, it's yeah, thinking it's a single word, yeah. Right, pro-migration as opposed to like pro-immigration or something yeah. like that. I thought of putting in an extra M there to make the pronunciation clear, but then it's like pro-migration? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> like you're going to prom and you're migrating to prom. It's like group to prom. Or so- I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where can people go to find out more about you and uh, check out your book? So I have a, a weekly newsletter, which is about all things history of innovation, history of invention, and sometimes a few other things as well. Um, I guess you're probably providing a link somewhere to that, right? Yes, we'll, um, have, we'll have show notes. So see the link below, I guess, to listeners. Um, <laughs> and the book is out on the 12th of May, so very soon. I guess by the time this comes out, probably might already be out. Um, available from all bookstores, Amazon, from the publishers, etc., etc., in Kindle and Hardback at the moment, in an ebook. What's the name of that book? And that's Arts and Minds: How the Royal Society of Arts Changed the Nation. And it looks Please like I, I checked it. It is it is up on Amazon, so it looks like you can you know get your pre-orders in. Yes, yeah. Actually, weirdly, in the UK, it seems to have people have been ordering it. It's already been arriving, even though it's like from at least a month out from the public official publication date. You can even get second-hand copies, apparently. So, that's the- <laughs> were you? Were you? Like, un- like, like black market selling your manuscripts? Is that what's going on? <laughs> Not the e version. No, no, I didn't, it wasn't. <laughs> I think it must be. Hey, that's that, just, you're, yeah, weird. you're a scanner away from making that happen. Yeah, yeah. I have the e version. <laughs> what about social media? Are you active on like LinkedIn and Twitter? Oh, and on Twitter, at Anton House, all one word. 
So thank you, Anton. This has been absolutely enlightening, and I love hearing about how uh, what's the culture and mentality behind a lot of the historical events uh, that we can look at and hopefully learn from. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash Routine.